And now, 20 years later, on her pedagogical, 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 <laughs> on her, on her great framework. Didn't learn that at school, did you? Yeah. Uh, today's word is uh, pedagogical. <laughs> pedagogical. Pedagogical. Never heard it being said before. <laughs> Never will use it again. <laughs> Never will be used again. Let's call it teaching. A teaching framework. A teaching framework. It's the same thing. Hello and welcome to An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World. I'm Luiso Matinga. And I'm Gail Galley. This is the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world but doesn't know where to start. In this series, we use the United Nations Plan for a Better World, a.k.a. the Global Goals, to help us identify who's already chipping away at the big problems and to see how average Joes like me... And me... ...can join in to become a positive force. Each week, we look at one of the 17 and meet the people finding solutions to achieve the Global Goals. In this episode, who is in school and who isn't? And what are they learning? And what are they unlearning? Plus, we meet a teacher in India who is doing things differently. So hello, Gail. How have you been, or MIA, bunking the podcast? <laughs> is, what, is the register present? <laughs> you should have been here when we're doing the actual work. I feel like you're saying present at the end of the school day. <laughs> I was here in spirit. I've had COVID. She said needily. And I think that's why I wasn't in school. I feel like COVID is slowly becoming the, the dog ate my homework of excuses. <laughs> isn't it? My kids, they're literally licking people's armpits if they look a bit coldy. They're so desperate to get out of school again. <laughs> but I do think it is, um, it speaks volumes about the education system. You know, we take it for granted. The fact that my kids are, you know, trying to catch COVID to get out of school I've lectured them so often about education being a privilege. They just don't buy it. <laughs> they just don't buy it. And yet we know how important education is, right? And I think that's what we're talking about. Yeah, that is what we're talking about in this episode. Education. Because the thing is with education is it's so important. And then only when you're older, then it becomes like a, oh, yeah, I was so lucky to get an education. I was hating it in class when I was getting this privilege. It's like if somebody told you you're having broccoli for dessert. It's only years later when your knees aren't giving out that you go, that's why we hate broccoli. <laughs> when you haven't got bowel cancer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I bet you were really, I mean, I'm going to make a big assumption here, but I bet you were quite naughty at school. I mean, some people say naughty. Others might say um, independent, <laughs> creative, creative um, stood up for what he believed mm -hmm. in and he believed in no maths. Mm -hmm. Well, I was really, really swatty and attentive. I loved school. Really? Yeah, I loved oh, it. Are you the kid I copied? my homework from uh, totally I'd be so grateful yeah. I'd be sure have my homework look how good it is I was so boring <laughs> oh you did you did you do multicolored notes in class yeah yeah yeah, yeah. except I was <sighs> I was at um I got a scholarship to a, a posher school than I was from so the thing I did not have was the Caron Dash do you remember there was a brand of pencils and they were amazing and they were like 120 different shades and I never had Caron Dash I mean I know that is a luxury problem and we are definitely talking in some of this episode about how some kids just can't get into school at all, and especially girls. I think it was when I first heard about a woman, a grown woman, talking about the challenges of trying to survive when you can't read. And, and you realise then, God, I take that for granted. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, there's millions of people are not being taught that. There's a real reality check in, embedded in this goal. Almost anyone listening to this podcast has obviously found it because they got an education at some point. 
Okay, so while you were away, banking class, I don't know what you were doing, smoking in the back, let me catch you up on what we're actually doing in this episode because I have been speaking to different people who who have been talking about the different parts of education system and how and what we need to do to change it. So we'll be hearing from technology evangelist David Moinina Senge and education campaigner for the Black Curriculum Lavinia Stennett. But first, what's the best way to teach our children. And are we doing it right? If we don't like our schools, let's build our own. That's what this one woman did. Her approach is all about creating confident whole human beings, not just pupils that can you know regurgitate. They still learn maths and science and all those things, but the focus is on themselves and the self-belief they need to do what they need to do. So let's head to Ahmedabad in India and hear what her ethos is all about. Here is Kiran Sethi, a revolutionary teacher and founder of the Riverside School. I'm actually a designer by education. So I graduated from a Premier Design Institute, running my design firm, being a lady of leisure and having the best time of my life. And then I become a mother and my whole world changed. You know, and I think that extreme and intimate experience of seeing how my son, all of five and a half, was deprived of his voice so early on and witnessing an education system that rewarded compliance over conversation. You know, he was told to keep quiet and if he kept quiet, he was a good boy. And we insidiously build that into our children so early on. And for me, actually, that was not good enough. So coming from a background in design, understanding the power of belief and human centeredness just gave me the opportunity to say there has to be a different way. So I took my son out of school and pretty much started Riverside in my home, you know, to say if there is a different way, what can it look like and what can it feel like? Riverside was built on that ethos of the of the user having that voice as an integral ingredient in the design of the processes, the spaces, the curriculum, the time. And then pretty much 21 years have gone by with this belief. I've learned now in the 21 years of running the school that we so often underestimate children and what they bring to the table. And if anything I have learned is this belief and this trust you give. They're whole people. They're just smaller and tinier, but they're whole people. That real belief, I think, translates into a child feeling that sense of empowerment. And then it comes very naturally. I think when they speak, they're speaking from such a deep source of having experienced this and having been trusted and listened to. My name is Kiara Shroff, uh, I'm nine years old and I go to Riverside School. I think I can means that uh, whenever you have an idea like uh, for anything, it could be anything you want and uh, it means that nothing is impossible. Like anything is possible and you can do it. It doesn't have to be uh, any other person. Anybody can do it. Ah! 
rather than just talk about what's not happening, at Riverside, we set about codifying everything we did for the very precise reason to say, we don't want to be the best school in the world. We want to be the best school for the world. But just our framework, the framework, which is our governing principle, which is feel, imagine, do, and share, which we call FIDS, which becomes a pedagogical framework as well as a framework of empowerment today is in 60 countries through Design for Change. We've reached over 2 million children and children across the world are telling us, I don't have to be 18 to make the world a better place. I'm doing it today. And they're using the simple framework of empowerment to start with their heart, feel anything that bothers them, imagine change, do it, and then share it so that they can inspire other children to say, oh, I can do that too. Let me tell you about one of the stories that came to us uh, in year two. It was a little village school in India, right in the corner, and the children had noticed that their grandparents were being disrespected and didn't have much um, to do. So the children realized that this is their, they wanted to have their grandparents have a sense of respect and dignity. So what an elegant solution. They set out to capture the folk stories of the grandparents. You've got these little kids sitting with little pens and papers with their grandparents and the grandparents are telling stories and they're writing it down. And then they decided to tell the, share the stories in the assembly. So they had sharing story and then they made little fold out papers with the stories and, and strung, uh, you know, that laundry line and made a library in their schools. Elegance. It was so beautiful. And I kid you not, everything you want to teach a child about communication skills, you want to talk about collaboration, you want to talk about literacy, all was in this beautiful story of change. Hi, so my name is Siddhartha Agrawal. I am going to turn 17 in a couple of days and I'm right now currently finishing the 11th grade in the Riverside School. Confidence is something which can really actually build your passion for certain things. It can push you to try out certain things. And if you don't have the ICANN spirit, you won't be able to do that. So the ICANN spirit is something which is very powerful. And I think so everybody should have it. The only thing, unfortunately, schools across the world have done every time is exams and tell you your one monodimensional identity, which is so uh, disheartening. I keep saying we keep telling our children you are markable, but not remarkable. So imagine expanding that. Imagine giving the plurality of who you are. You could be a son, you could be a father, you could be an ornithologist, you could be a mathematician. The fact that we are human by chance, but we become humane by the choices we make are those values of empathy and ethics and excellence. So these values need to be actioned. The role that education can play is so pivotal and so urgent to be able to bring the citizenship that we want. And, and I think if, you, if COVID has again highlighted that, just imagine this is the only time humanity came together. And children's education has always been a crisis. We've never had the collective will to get our act together and say, let's move the needle. So if COVID has taught us something and we take anything away from it, it is this, that it always needs to start with the heart. Nothing else matters for our kids. It's not what we learn tech. Tech, we can learn things by ourselves, but we only learn about ourselves with each other. 
And that power comes from the ability of the collective good and the idea that my work is for the greater good. Wow, she had all the sound bites, didn't she? I love what she said there about in the current system, you're markable, not remarkable. I mean, that's so true. Of course, it's like she didn't just change the curriculum, she changed the philosophy of education. Before you even step into the classroom, there is a world that is being built in this space, this Riverside School. And in this world, we are going to help you become the best version of you. And that's what the world needs. That's how we're going to get the goals, is if every little person on the planet is growing into a, a change maker and a problem solver and a, a tolerant, decent, informed human being. Okay, so now we've heard from Kiran about ways of learning for our children, how we teach them. But what about what we are teaching them? We never really asked who came up with the curriculum in the first place, right? Yeah, and you're, I've often thought about it because I, I now have two children very much in school. You know, my children are nine and 14. And what they bring home, they bring that home as law. You know, if, if a teacher said mm. it, that is the fact. I mean, there's nothing I can say to <laughs> contradict what a teacher says. But if you do step back from that for a set, you think, okay, but so what is being taught and what is not being taught and how is it being taught? And I don't think we have that dialogue enough anywhere in the world. Well, that's very interesting because my next guest that I talked to for you, so you can write <laughs> notes off of the work I did. She is actually looking what you at what you're talking about there with the history. I spoke to Lavinia Stenet. Uh, she's based there in the UK, young lady. She's the founder of the Black Curriculum, which aims to get Black history onto the national curriculum because it is uh, currently quite like this. I know our history is, is so white. Quite um, in thirty six and <laughs> uh, forty seven. Winston Churchill won everything and. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've never quite understood why we have Black History Month. I don't know if that's true all over the world, but in the UK, October is Black History Month. What happens the other 11 months of the year? Well, Black History Month becomes history. Right. <laughs> so this is why her work is so important. They do a lot of extracurriculum stuff, such as like teaching Black history through workshops for young people on the weekends, training sessions for teachers, social media campaigns, all this kind of stuff, you know, just really getting the information out there. And their big goal is to get it into the books of your children so they can come tell you the correct thing. Nice, nice. And so she's a very busy young lady. In fact, the only way to get her was to get her while she was in her car uh, using the Bluetooth. And I started by asking her why she felt that this was needed. The why is so important and, you know, particularly when we started, everyone was like, well, what's the why? You need to sell the why. But I don't think it's anything that we can actually sell. It's it's just really fundamentally ensuring that black people across the UK and also worldwide are represented and also understand, you know, our history. And I think that's, it's not just about like diversity and inclusion. It's about belonging into a world where you are seen as human and you have, yeah, complete access to, to every kind of space in this world because we created it, right? So um, for me, that's the why. I totally get that. I mean, like myself, I'm, like, I'm in South Africa, a black guy in South Africa, and my high school education, almost all of my education was barely black in terms of history. So I'm just wondering now, I mean, that has value for black people. Don't you think that it should be for everybody? And is, is it for everyone in Britain to, to access? 
I think that's the key. Like at the moment, black history and black education is segmented as something that is black only. And my perspective is that once everyone knows something specific about black history, even if it's the smallest thing, number one, not only does that increase their knowledge and awareness and also understanding about black people, but also it helps them to identify their place in the world as well. So like no one is above or superior than anyone else you know we've all had equal contributions and we all equally belong so i think it's important for for everyone to know this so then this world of information this um this portal of knowledge that you're creating what effects are you hoping to see in the real world well for me education is the is the epicenter of every single issue we face and like just the societies that we live in so i think like you know the the outcomes that we have are multifaceted they they relate to outcomes in school and when we're thinking about like grades and when we're thinking about long-term career aspirations teaching black history not only shows us what's possible but what also has been told to us is also impossible to achieve so i feel like you know it, it will not only create more access, but also more awareness of opportunities for students in their careers. And I think on a more personal micro level, it's that confidence. The word colonialism comes up a lot when we talk about the global goals. And I think it's one of those words that has been used so often in in arguments and in things that do divide that people kind of shut off when they hear about it. And I think it's very important to go, when you hear the word colonialism, I think it's a reference of something that is a historical fact. And it's something that when you're trying to, you know, bring a a curriculum, you can directly point at the effects of colonialism and what was studied and what was not studied. And eradication of um, indigenous cultures was a very real, very systemic part of colonialism. So how do you... Do you do anything specifically to integrate everybody else into to bring people into this conversation who are not of African descent? Yeah, for sure. And I, I really like that you mentioned that, you know, colonialism isn't just a throwaway word. It's a reality that still has many legacies today that, you know, some would call neocolonialism and I'd agree with that. I think there are aspects of it that we're living and experiencing and seeing very, you know, real today and climate change is one of those. So, I would like to emphasize that the way that we draw attention back to what we're doing for all people is through the kind of mainstream campaigns that we do. So um, one of our campaigns is called TBH365, and um, that stands for Teach Black History 365, and it also stands for To Be Honest 365, because it's not just October. So essentially within that, what we do, we are trying to engage government to ensure that the national curriculum, so we're basically campaigning for that national curriculum to be changed or to embed specific examples of black history, especially within the history subject. So we have like mobilized MPs, councillors, like parliamentary people to really kind of support that mission. And, you know, local parents are involved. We also done a collaboration with Lush, which is like a high street store focusing on like cosmetics to increase the audiences that we're trying to appeal to because this isn't just a black issue. So, yeah, I think it's about taking this outside of just education and black education specifically to a national and also international movement. These are the kind of things that um, if we spread around the world, it's more knowledge, I guess. I mean, why would to to block people's knowledge is to lose their knowledge? And I I think we don't think of it that way. We kind of look at Western um, 
education is like, oh, this is it. This is the totality of human knowledge. And then you, you don't even know the knowledge that you're actually losing just by not including the very people around you uh, into your own education. And where do, you, where do you hope to see this? I mean, like looking in the future, I mean, like how optimistic are you about the spreading of knowledge? Well, I, I'd start with the negative first. I do see many brick walls, I'm not going to lie. Like when I think about education over social media, we experience so much on social media that it's very hard to not only facilitate a conversation that will provoke people to think and also then change their actions, yet alone have people become like almost ambassadors of what we're doing over that. And, I, I, you know, I've gone straight to social media because I feel like that's the place that a lot of us, we live there. <laughs> so I think it can be quite depressing to think about the future when we have so much current problems, especially with the tools and the mediums that we're using. And then I don't even want to get into it, but the whole education system, it's super, super disenfranchising young people, firstly, and it's super fractured. So, you know, large scale change is very difficult to make um, because it involves so many different processes and people and it takes a lot of coordination. Having said that, I feel like, you know, what we're doing the talking, the exposing of knowledge and specific campaigners who are doing incredible work gives me so much optimism and hope that, you know, the work that we're doing can grow and that can sustain itself with like the right ambassadors, right? So, um, yeah, every global goal is so necessary. And I feel like this ecosystem that has been created is so key to not only raise awareness, but also bring people's got that vision of what hope can look like together. Listen to her talking about the goals. Someone had just come and do my job. <laughs> yeah, she's really getting involved. And until we all understand each other and our history, I think every country has this problem right now in terms of like, we're so divided and stuff because we don't even understand each other and how we all got to be. Then it's hard to find the solutions and work towards the solutions together because we haven't even built the idea of together yet. That's so important if we're going to tackle these goals is to keep reinforcing the idea that we are all together in this. Super important. And I think that's just a sign for me of how education works. Like Kieran was saying before her, you know, give kids the tools to solve the problems, give them the knowledge and the understanding, then they can just take the world forward from here. It's so important. A sense of self isn't just a sense of just me. A sense of self is also a sense of how I fit into the world. And a sense of self is also how others fit into my world. Okay, so it seems to me we've got a new school, a new way of understanding and powering the next gen. We've established a new curriculum where everybody feels represented. So far, so good, right? But um, what about the people who are still left behind? You know, there are like, 130 million girls still out of school. When you look at the evidence of what that does, you know, if girls aren't educated, then they don't go to work. And if they don't go to work, I mean, you've seen the stats, I'm sure, about how much money and time women can give back to their communities. On climate change, there's so many studies. Uh, the Brookings Institution did one. This really blew my mind. Secondary schooling for girls is the single most cost-effective and best investment we can make against climate change. That's sending girls to school. Mm. So, I mean, I could go on. <laughs> no, but, um, for sure. In, in, in short, educate girls, all the girls. 
Oh, for sure. If you don't include everybody, you decrease your your own chances. So, Gail, have you heard of the term radical inclusion? Not really. I mean, I've heard of radical often can be a bad thing, <laughs> but inclusion sounds good. So, no, I have not heard of those two things together. Well, I have heard of this term uh, while you were out, you know, riding in cars with boys. I don't know what you do, frankly. <laughs> Look, while you're off, I was lucky enough to talk to someone who is creating actual change on a policy level. And and one of the solutions he sees is using technology to educate hard-to-reach communities. His name is David Moinina Senge. He is the Education Minister and Chief Innovation Officer for the Government of Sierra Leone. So he has a background in tech. In fact, he has a PhD from MIT, and that is G-O-O-D. <laughs> that is O-M-G, that is. <laughs> you will say O-M-G, because after chatting to him, I realized the solutions are simpler than we think, you know. Uh, so I asked him about this policy of radical inclusion and what it actually means. Yeah, radical inclusion really is that we'll stop at nothing until every child can go to school, no matter where they come from, no matter their physical or cognitive ability. And the reason for that is if you just say everybody comes to school, you know that there are systems, there are infrastructure, there are regulation, there are taboos that mean not everybody will come to school. And radical inclusion is saying that as government, as community, as society, as schools, as everybody, we will take the necessary steps to remove those institutional barriers. We will take every step to change those laws. And we're focusing specifically on four groups uh, who are historically marginalized. And these are girls and parent learners. These are people with disabilities, any form of disability. These are poor people. And these are people in hard to reach and remote areas. And within this policy, we are doing things like if you're pregnant, you can come back to school, which was not possible before we changed the policy. It means that we are putting examination centers in every chiefdom so you don't have to travel days and hours and sleep in a place to go take an exam. If you didn't have special buses to carry kids with special needs because you can't go onto the regular school buses will provide special transportation for you. If you didn't have learning materials because you were in a place where you had to be in a boat uh, for three hours from where the vehicle stopped, I will go there. My staff will go there. We'll meet with you and we'll give you those materials. If you didn't have radio connectivity and radio devices, we will make sure that we cover as many people across the country with radio signal such that you can benefit from the education radio and we'll give you the devices as well. It really is making sure that we stop at nothing until every child can access and stay safely in school. I want to touch on the tech side because I know you, you're really uh, trying to bring tech as a solution for education. I just want to quickly ask you on those on those four points, have you gotten to experience any surprising challenges, things you never saw as a, a hindrance before when you when you are coming up with solutions that you realize you also have to solve this before you actually can do what you had on paper? One positive surprise was um, people always thought that, you know, the chiefs will be against this this radical inclusion. And actually, in all of our trips um, in, in rural areas, when the president gives the chief three minutes to speak about anything, and they often say, Mr. President, thank you for allowing pregnant girls to go to school. 
Thank oh, you wow. for radical inclusion, you know. And it's uh, it's been a really happy surprise to see that something that people thought was impossible, that was against their traditions, was against how they think, is, is now fully embraced by this. On the other side, it's also that, you know, it's been a little bit surprising that just policy change does not lead to those practices being changed immediately. But we're, we're getting there. And I'm sure it's, it's not an easy process because now you're having to go uh, spread a message school to school that you were hoping a policy would cover for the entire country. Yes, it forces us to think outside the box. Um, we went on this national tour of um, zero schoolgirl pregnancy. And, you know, I'll be, these, these our leaders and our traditionalists and our cultural people don't necessarily talk about sex in a very open way in front of everybody where all the adults and the kids are. And I'll say things like, you know, if you're an adult and the child comes and lays down and open, takes off their clothes and opens their leg in front of you and says, come have sex with me, you should run away. You know, you shouldn't. Have. And then all these leaders will be like, ah, you know, you should not be speaking like that. And uh, like, no, but it's true. This is what happens. They don't even know. They don't even realize. They're never, there's no sexual education. And in addition to having these policy changes and, and engaging people, we also change the curriculum. And in the curriculum, we have a new updated comprehensive and sexuality education curriculum so that they understand what choices are available to them, how they make safe choices, and how they ensure that they can stay in school safely. How has education changed in the classroom? What kind of changes are you having to implement now, especially in a, in a world of COVID, in a world that is moving very fast in technology and in a world where a different kind of education might actually be required than the ones policymakers are trying to give the children? You know, Sierra Leone is like a melting pot of education innovation at this time. And it's not just because I'm the minister. Like, I wish more people can come to study all the stuff that we're doing. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of why. We're one of the first, one of the only countries to expand our education sector budget in the year of COVID. When everybody else was removing money from education and putting it uh, in other places, we expanded our education budget. We came up with new teacher training modules, increased the salary of teachers in the year of COVID. And the curriculum, we've changed our civic education curriculum, we've changed our basic education curriculum. And these are curriculum that are updated and, as you said, fit for purpose in the 21st century. We're exploring creativity, arts and music in school at the same time. We are building mobile-based solutions. You know, I... The dictionary is a privilege. If you don't know the meaning of a word, you can Google it. But not every kid has access to Google. It's a 7% phone coverage in the country. And so we built an SMS dictionary during COVID so kids can continue learning. Where you don't know a word, you can text it uh, by SMS and the meaning comes back to you. How you, you know which school you're going to, whether you're being placed into a school. Now it's an algorithm that does it. It's not that you go and bribe somebody and pay. If you get the grades, depending on what you sat for, you get placed automatically into your school and you have it on your phone. We have more kids taking exams, more girls passing, and just everybody is, is, is doing well and everybody's doing better. The use of tech in, in education, people f do have a understandable fear that this is just another layer of exclusion because tech, it's the first thing, you know, that doesn't reach everybody. How have you guys seen the use of tech and, and what are your thoughts on, on how it's used for more reach rather than a deeper reach for the fewer? 
I think my approach with the conversation around technology is um, is expanding people's sense of possibilities as opposed to starting from a place of limitation. And one way to start is thinking that, you know, paper is technology. Paper is the oldest form of technology in our classrooms. And if you agree that paper is technology, you agree that radio is technology, you agree that then mobile and online are technology, then you're not going to say, oh, we don't want technology in the classroom. So that's then the, the question changes. Then the question then becomes, how do we use hybrid technologies that work in poor areas, in places where there's no power, in places where there's no connectivity, where people are not trained? How do we employ hybrid technologies to make sure that people continue learning and teaching effectively? And if you ask that question, then you say, well, we all know how to listen to BBC Focus in Africa. If you are listening to BBC Focus in Africa, you know how to listen to radio. But actually, if you're a child in a remote area, you've never heard the oral English exam, which accounts for about, I think, 30% of your score. Most people in Sierra Leone will get zero in oral English because they have never heard somebody speak English in the way that they'll hear on the tape on the examination day. So it's then to say, well, can we play oral English audios on the radio for you so that you can hear it using technology? Can we charge those radios using solar? And maybe if you do get 7% or 8% or 10%, then your chances of passing English and transitioning out of school is higher. How do we help you do that? So technology can actually be a leveler if we deploy it well. Your job is central to the the country's future. I mean, you you have to not only educate the children, but you have to look at every other department and see how they fit into the world that those departments are also playing. Where do you see the future of Sierra Leone and the continent and maybe even expand it to the world if we change the education system? Where are the opportunities for us to create new places or more space for our educated youth? The school as it is today has been what it has been for hundreds of years, and it doesn't make sense. Um, one of the things that I had done when I was in, in grad school was this thing called Innovate Saloon and Innovate Kenya and Innovate Cape Town, where young people are giving, I think it was up 500 bucks um, to solve a problem. And we have hundreds, thousands who've gone through this program. And some of them have gone on to Harvard, MIT, and won millions of dollars actually as 20-something-year-olds um, consequently. Wow. Society needs design, creatives, entrepreneurs, people who are thinking around There's no reason for us to be hungry in Sierra Leone. We have the land, we have the rain. If Israel, where they don't have rain, can be great in agriculture and export food, I don't see why Sierra Leone does not produce enough food to feed our people. I don't see why Sierra Leone, who mines all these diamonds and gold and rutile and bauxite, has no layer of post-processing in our country. I don't see a reason why our engineers are just working for road construction companies instead of coming up with new toilet seats or new flushing systems that deal with the water challenges that we have. You know, the opportunity that exists for the continent uh, is now we have the young people. Young people have time. Young people can sit up all night writing code and debugging. And I think we need to 
see how we can tap into the energy, the creativity, the excitement, the enthusiasm of young people such that they're learning the skills and applying them to solve problems today that will bring in revenue and resources, right? So we do need to close the loop such that they begin to benefit from those things. He's cool, isn't he? Yeah. I forgot that I was talking to someone in the government. There was no dodging of questions. There was no politically correct answers. He actually just gave me a breakdown of what they're doing. And what's fascinating for me is in this whole pandemic, they looked at their people as their main resource. And they said, when things get bad, if we just invest in the people, we'll be okay. I love the way he summed up there by talking about, we've got the young people. Because, you know, there's a lot said all the time about how African countries are so much younger than other countries, you know, and you've got this brilliant resource waiting to be activated. And so what Mm. he's talking about is activating it in a really practical way. Yeah. And also using technology in not this lofty way we think about it. We can't send everybody MacBooks and Wi-Fi. And it's like, oh, no, it's not MacBook and Wi-Fi. Sometimes it's an SMS. Sometimes it's a radio. Who's thinking of radio as a solution in 2022? I know, especially a radical one. It's brilliant though, because it's working. The point of school, I realized post-school, was all you had to do in school was learn how to learn. It wasn't specifically about algebra. It wasn't specifically about history. But if I could use those lessons to learn how to learn, then when I actually know what I want to do, I can use the skill of learning. And I believe in myself because I have this skill of learning to do something else. Yeah, it's that I I really always enjoy using the frame of the what and the how. And I think the current or the legacy school systems are based very much on the what, you know, what subject matter, what is the right answer? Whereas the the people we've been speaking with today- I've been speaking with, yes. It's all about the how, because if you've been speaking with, and I've been, I think, analysing to a superior level of (laughs) comprehension, certainly within the global goals context, uh, is the how, right? So I feel so much better after this education episode, because if all those people can get their solutions to scale- Think about how many good things are going to happen in the world because of that. Oh, yes. It's so great to know that the solutions are out there. But uh, like with any class, were you attending? Were you mentally there? Because uh, we need <laughs> yes. to uh, test your yes, attention. Yes, I was. I told you I was swatty. Oh, so are, are you ready for the recap? Yeah, of course. Bring it on. All righty then. Let us start the clock and see what we have learned. Let's go. Um, check with your kids' school about are they building tolerance and empathy and self-confidence. Kids are whole people. Books are important currency. If you've got spare ones, donate them. Yep, and be the best for the world, not in the world. That was a nice line. Uh, let's not fear technology when it comes to children, just because we're worried about gaming. Let's use it to give them the best education they can have. Yep, and join in the teaching. Find a way to be a tutor. Don't waste the education you got at school. Um, black history is history, so let's teach it. And all indigenous histories oh, too. Oh, that is it. it. That's it. That is it. I don't know if we passed. Doesn't but, matter. Uh, anyway, it's not about passing as we found out. So head on over to globalgoals.org where you'll find out so many more things you can do to get involved. Because that is all we have time for, for global goal number four, quality education. There's a lot in that goal. We've only scratched the surface. But at the heart of it is how do we ensure inclusive and equitable quality education for everyone 
in the world. Oh, yeah. Yep. I'm excited to get out of this episode and get into a world where uh, we are having uh, better citizens. That's what I look forward to. Education creates better citizens because, man, it is hard to go outside with my current citizens. Uh, <laughs> but it's just good to know that there's also better people doing things out in the world in the education space and that we can reap the fruits of the labor of um, these people by living in a better world in the future. Yeah? Yeah. I'm excited. Let's get it on. I'm Luiso Matinga, signing out. And I'm Gail Galley. I'll see you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is a Radio Wolfgang production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers were Yolaine Goffin and Holly Fisher. Additional editing by Louis Frain. The researcher was Emmeline Duffy. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave a review. It helps other people find us. And the more people find us, the more people are saving the world. This podcast is supported by Google.org, bringing the best of Google to help solve some of humanity's biggest challenges. Find out more at Google.org. 